give us voices to lift in song and praise, an instrumentalist skilled in music to declare the glories of Christ. How merciful of our Lord to allow us to gather on his day and rejoice in his resurrection. What an amazing Savior we have. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, as we consider the resurrected shepherd and his blessed sheep. Hebrews chapter 13. In 1922, there was a discovery made that was quickly coined the most important archaeological discovery in world history. I would argue with that, but that's what they said. The discovery was made by Howard Carter, a British Egyptologist who was digging around in the King's Valley region of Egypt and came across a a tomb that had not yet been unearthed. As he investigated into the tomb, he, he found that not even the grave robbers had found this tomb yet. It was completely untouched from when it had been sealed. As they investigated this tomb, they found that it was full, full of artifacts and treasures and the famous golden death mask of the pharaoh whose tomb it was, King Tut. The world was quickly awed and gripped by the story and by the reality of a tomb that was full. There was finally a tomb that was left intact that had not yet been touched. They took these ancient artifacts and it lit this frenzy worldwide to know and study Egyptian culture and history. These artifacts were shipped all around the world in a traveling display for decades on end. In fact, a a recent tour just finished here in 2022 showing the world the artifacts found in this tomb that was full both of artifacts and of King Tut's mummified body. Early on a Sunday morning, almost 2,000 years ago, some women headed to another tomb of another king. And they expected when they arrived to find it occupied with his dead body. But instead, they were met by an angel who announced to them the best news possible. He is not here, not because someone stole his body. He is not here because he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Friend, the world is consumed with king's tombs that are filled with ancient artifacts. While the church is built upon and fueled by a tomb of an empty king because he has risen He has risen indeed. To help us rejoice in our risen Lord this morning, I want to consider a text from this wonderful book of Hebrews, specifically just two verses from the last chapter, verses 20 and 21. This letter is called Hebrews because it's written to Jewish Christians. Jews are also known, as I'm sure you are aware, as Hebrews. And it's written to these Jewish Christians who are obviously struggling with and battling with the the culture that they've left, the religious pressure and system that they uh, are fighting constantly against, seeking to press them back in to religion and Judaism. As you read through the letter, you realize that 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 pressing is so severe that they're facing opposition, they're facing loss of, 
of wealth and goods and even their homes. They're, they're facing imprisonment and persecution and potential martyrdom if they continue to say that Jesus of Nazareth is my Savior and my Messiah. And so the author of this letter writes to them, some think even preached to them, this letter, calling them to persevere through the reproach, to bear the shame of being identified with Christ through faith in him. And he tells them this is so serious and so severe that if you, if you fail to persevere, you will not enter in to eternal life, meaning your faith was never legit in the first place. It says them, never turn back from Christ. Never return to that religious system over your true Savior. As he tries to convince them of this, he has a letter that's dripping in Old Testament analogies and even quotations. You would expect that writing to Jewish people. This is their scriptures, the Old Testament. And he writes using the Old Testament, proving to them that Jesus of Nazareth is far better than anything in the Old Testament. That all of those things they cling to in the Judaistic system point to this Jesus of Nazareth. And so he writes to them right away in chapter 1. He says, Jesus is far greater than the angels. Chapter 2, Jesus is far greater than Moses. Chapters 3 and 4, he's far greater than, than Abraham. Going on into 6 and 7 and 8, he's far better than the priests of the old covenant and of the old covenant system. Jesus is supreme over all of these things and he says this to them to compel their persevering faith. That they would endure opposition and ridicule and persecution from a world that hates their Lord. On an Easter like this one, I think this is a message the church also needs to hear. As we face the growing opposition and ridicule and even persecution of those who name the name of Christ as their only hope and their only confidence and their only trust, we must also persevere. As we come to the end of the letter, we find this wonderful prayer report of the author that he prays for those who are receiving his letter. It's often called a benediction because it is the author calling down God's blessing upon those who hear the letter. He's asking for more blessing. He's blessing them through his praying. It's the only benediction in all of Scripture that is so closely tied to the resurrection. That should be significant. There's plenty of benedictions, almost one at the end of every one of Paul's letters. This is the only one in all of the New Testament letters that is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not only that, but the author speaks of our Lord in terms of his role as shepherd over his sheep. Well, that should strike a note for those of you who were here last week and the week before. We've been in John 10 considering Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. And you remember in verses 17 and 18 of John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd of the sheep, and because that is true, I have authority over my life. I lay it down, and remember, I take it up again. No man can take it from me. I have authority over it alone. So in light of our studies in John 10, I was compelled to this text to consider how the resurrection of our great shepherd impacts our perseverance of faith. How does the fact that you have a Lord who is no longer in the grave impact that you continue on in the faith? That you persevere in believing and clinging to Christ? 
That really is the logic of the prayer. I think you'll see that as we work our way through it, that the resurrection of Jesus is the fountain out of which all flows that is necessary for us to walk by faith in him. It's a prayer rooted in the belief that Jesus' resurrection is the key which unlocks the door to persevering faith and being pleasing to God. Chapter 13, verse 20, the writer of Hebrews says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the glorious truths we've been able to sing this morning that the grave could not hold your son. He broke the chains and the bars of death that grip us so tightly and has opened the way for us into your most holy place where we right now in this moment enter by faithful prayer. Thank you for the access and the confidence you've given us through the shed blood of your son to come into your presence and to ask for your blessing. So now, Lord, we ask, as this writer of Hebrews asked, that you, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus by the blood of the eternal covenant, that you would equip us with everything good so we may indeed do your will and that you would then work in us all things that are pleasing before you through your son and may it all be to the praise of your glorious grace. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Take note of how the prayer is structured in verses 20 and 21. The basis of the prayer is found in verse 20. The content of the prayer is found in verse 21. The basis in 20, the content in verse 21. He tells us in verse 20 who he is praying to and on what basis he is confident that this God of mercy and peace will answer him. And then he tells us in verse 21 what it is that he's praying for those who he is interceding for. This leads then to this explosion of praise and glory at the end of verse 21 because he's confident that the God of peace will do this. He will answer this prayer. And all of this swirls around the nucleus who is Christ and namely the resurrected Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. By his resurrection, by the way, I mean to speak of the totality of his work. So does the New Testament. When the New Testament speaks of his death or of his resurrection, it means to speak of both. For you do not have one without the other. It's, it's a, 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 a speaking of the whole by speaking of the part. And so when he says the, the resurrected Lord, he's speaking of all of the work done in death, burial, and resurrection. This is the cornerstone upon which this text is built. This prayer can be prayed and answered because God is a God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead. And then the sheep of that shepherd, as we find in verse 21, are blessed with those realities because their great shepherd was raised from the dead. You see the nucleus here the, around which everything resolves and revolves. I want to take a few minutes to focus on each of those facts of the text. First, the resurrected shepherd, and then his blessed Sheep. Look first at the resurrected shepherd in verse 20. As I've told you already, the book of Hebrews is, 
is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus of Nazareth and extolling and exalting him. He being supreme over all, he says to his hearers, you must persevere in your faith. Even if it costs you everything, believe in Christ. It's really quite an astounding thing then that this is the first direct mention in the book of Hebrews of the resurrection of Jesus. This is the first time in the book that he's mentioned the resurrection of Christ. That's not because it's unimportant, but rather because it's assumed. He's written all throughout the book, and and what he focuses on in the book of Hebrews is the exaltation of Jesus. He speaks multiple times of how, having completed his work in chapter 1 and chapter 8 and chapter 10, how he sat down at the right hand of the Father, exalted to his right hand. In chapter 7, he speaks of the great high priest who is the great high priest because of his indestructible life. That's his resurrected life. Having died once and being raised back to life, he can no longer die. He has an indestructible life, therefore he is our high priest. It's just an assumed fact all throughout the book of Hebrews. But now here at the end, as he prays for all who read it, he says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. This is a resurrection of our Lord that was worked by the God of peace. And as I've said, it's the basis of the prayer that the sheep will be blessed with his equipping power. That title, the God of Peace, is used six other times in the New Testament, all in Paul's letters. But it's never one other time used in direct connection to bringing Jesus back from the dead. Remember this author writing to Jewish believers, he knew that they knew their Old Testaments. And so what he says in verse 20 is an allusion back to their Old Testament, namely to the prophet Isaiah specifically to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 63, where he is looking at the coming wrath of God, and in looking at the coming wrath of God, he's reminded of the past mercy of God. And in thinking about the past mercy of God, he uses the same language brought up again, the shepherd of Israel, and he speaks of Moses, how God worked through Moses to bring his people out from slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, which should have been death to them through the walls held up by God's miraculous power and brought them up out the other side to freedom and peace with him. The writer of Hebrews is saying that's a foreshadowing of Christ. He came to rescue his people. Just as Israel was led out of slavery to Egypt through the blood of the lamb spread on the doorposts on that night the death angel passed through the land. So also our Lord Jesus was raised on a cross with blood shed on our behalf to be wiped on the doorposts of our life by his grace through faith in him. Just as they left and passed through the depths of the Red Sea and back out the other side to freedom and peace with God, so too Christ gave himself as the spotless lamb and led us through the valley of death and out the other side. Because God brought him back again from the depths of death. And in fact then, he can be the God of peace. This is the only way he can be the God of peace. This is the only way you, friend, can have peace with the God who made you the God to whom you must give account one day. 
The only way your soul can be right with that God is by the blood of the cross of Christ. Nothing you do can earn you a peaceful standing before God. It is only what Jesus the Lord has done on your behalf. There are many verses that speak of that, the clearest being Colossians 1 and verse 20, where Paul says that this Jesus was used by God to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God can be the God of peace because Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. God can be the God of peace because in his resurrection, the Father validated his work. What Jesus said on the cross to tell us, it is finished, it is paid in full. The Father said on Sunday morning when that dead body was raised back to life into an indestructible life. How is it, friend, that we have a guarantee of peace with God in light of our sin? How can you know that peace? How do you know that that you've been forgiven of your sin debt, that it's been paid in full? How do you know that you can stand justified, declared righteous in the presence of a righteous and holy judge? How do you know that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to cover your sins? Isn't it because he was raised from the grave? Doesn't that settle all of those questions? His shed blood was sufficient to grant you forgiveness and you can be confident in that because he did not stay in the tomb. In this resurrection, our triune God agrees. It is finished, paid in full, full and free forgiveness offered to all who would believe. The God of heaven now is a God of peace for all who are in Christ by grace through faith in him. Maybe you're among us this morning and you know the facts of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for you. You know the, the story of Easter. You can go down the mental checklist of all the bullet points of, of why it even matters. You might even be able to, to say to us some of the theological nuances of, of why that's important. But have you, friend, looked to Jesus Christ in faith? Do you know peace with God through Christ? Is he indeed your only hope? Because you're either in Christ or you're in your sins. Those, those are the only two options. You're either at peace with God through his son or you are still at war with him in your sins. The offer is free and full to you today. Full and free forgiveness is offered to you through the wounds of Jesus our Lord. He has paid every debt you owe. If you will look to him and live today, you can know peace with God and eternal life in his son. May today be the day of your salvation if you do not yet know Christ. If you are in Christ, you have peace with God. Therefore, you can know he is able to do what the writer here prays for him to do. This peace then, which is assured through the resurrection, is also a peace based on the blood of the eternal covenant. He goes on to say that the, the great shepherd of the sheep could only be raised because of the blood he shed. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? He could only be brought out of the tomb because it was his blood that was shed for us. In other words, it's not, it's not your average death, nor your average blood. It's not your average substitutionary sacrifice. 
There's more going on with Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus is, is the link to the new covenant. Paul said that. Do you remember when he quoted Jesus' words from the Gospels and he said, Jesus told me to give this ordinance to you in 1 Corinthians 11, to take this cup and, and to remember me. Remember what he calls it? This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So the only reason we can have a, a new standing, an, an eternally peaceful standing with the God of heaven under the umbrella of the new covenant is because of the blood shed by his son. This old covenant, the, the Mosaic covenant, was also mediated by blood, wasn't it? The blood of, of bulls and goats and lambs. The blood of animal sacrifices. But those were, as you know, temporary offerings of atonement which needed to keep happening because they, they weren't sufficient to take away sins once and for all. This is where Jesus' blood enters in in a completely different way. It's through the shedding of his blood that he mediates this new covenant, this permanent and eternal covenant between God and man. It's a new covenant by which he grants us a new birth, a new heart, a new life in Christ. We do nothing and we bring nothing. Christ does everything and is everything. The sacrifice and the mediator, the shed blood for us, securing our salvation. Not only does he make a new covenant through the shedding of his blood, but he also does a lot of other things through his blood. Listen as I rattle off all that the New Testament says about his cross work for us, his shed blood. Hebrews 9.12 tells us that he obtained an eternal redemption for us. So there's an eternal covenant and an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.14, he cleanses our consciences from the stain of sin by his blood. Hebrews 10.19, by his blood, we have confidence to enter into the holy place of God. Hebrews 13, 11 to 12, Jesus shed his blood outside the gate in order that he might sanctify his people, make them holy. Acts 20, verse 28, because he is the shepherd of the sheep of the flock of God, he purchased that flock with the shedding of his own blood. Romans 3, verse 25, by faith in his blood, we receive propitiation from our sins. Propitiation is a, a big theological term which means satisfaction of God's righteous wrath. It's completely assuaged. It's completely dealt with. It's completely satisfied by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9, his blood justifies us before God, declares us right, holy, just before God. Ephesians 1, 7, his blood redeems us from our sin. Ephesians 2, 13, his blood brings Gentiles into the people of God. Colossians 1, and verse 20, by the blood of his cross, we have peace with God. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we are ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. 1 John 1, and verse 7, we are cleansed from all sin by the blood of Christ. Revelation 1 and verse 5, we're released from our sins by the blood of Christ. Revelation 5 and verse 9, that glorious picture of the heavens open for us to see a worship scene where they cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And what, is, what makes him worthy? That he has purchased for God a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation 
by his blood. This eternally secure relationship that we enjoy with God as the God of peace is based upon the shed blood of the eternal covenant, the great shepherd of the sheep. And this is all true because Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. I quoted John 10, 17 and 18 already, but Jesus there says he's the good shepherd and no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down and he takes it up at his own accord, at his own bidding. He has authority to do it, to lay it down and to take it up again. And here the writer of Hebrews completely agrees. He, second, he seconds the statement of John 10, 17 and 18. Indeed, it is true, Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep because he was resurrected from the dead. This truth of Christ must have been incredibly encouraging to these struggling believers who are first reading this letter. Place yourself, if you would, for a moment in their shoes, in their sandals, as it were. These struggling believers facing the plundering of their property and prison time if they continue to name the name of Jesus as their Savior and Messiah. But they're assured here at the end of the book that their walk is not a walk that is alone. They are indeed led by their great shepherd. And they can be led by their great shepherd because he's no longer in the tomb. He didn't just say when he was alive, I am the good shepherd, I hope that works out for you. He said, I am the good shepherd. And then he raised himself from the dead and said, see, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the great shepherd of the sheep. I went through that death on your behalf. Shortly after this letter was written in the second century, Christians in Rome were, were pushed underground, metaphorically and literally. You remember Nero, particularly in, in 70 AD, 68 to 70 AD, hated the Jews, 64 to 70, I should say. Hated the Christians and used them as a scapegoat for the burning of Rome, which he himself had lit the fire that persecution drove them, not just Nero's, but then Diocletian's at the end of the first century, drove the Roman Christians who continued to cling to Jesus to meet in the catacombs, which were hewn out grave burial yards underneath Rome. Cave, a, a labyrinth of, of a cave system in which they would, would bury their dead. And the Christians would, would go and meet down there and, know that they could find safety there, for the Romans certainly wouldn't look for them there. They could go and have their, their love feast. They could gather around the Lord's table and remember and rejoice in the love shown to them. They could sing at the top of their lungs to this great God who had saved them. They could be encouraged with the scriptures and consider the glory of Christ and continue in their faith. And while they were down there, they, they wrote on the walls. They wrote statements and sayings and drew pictures to help encourage them, a little, a little wall art to lighten the scene, if you will. And you know what the most common scene depicted on the walls of the catacombs is? Jesus with a sheep draped around his shoulders, carrying the sheep along. I think it is one of the most encouraging, life-giving, faith-inspiring, Perseverance invoking thoughts to think of Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep. 
who has gone through everything we will face to a level we can never imagine and has come out the other side victorious so that Paul can say to us in Romans 8, neither death nor life, nor persecution, nor suffering, nor height, nor depth, nor power, nor principality, nor any other thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He has secured you in every way. Why can this be a sure comfort? Because he was brought back from the dead as the great shepherd of the sheep. This resurrected shepherd then has blessed sheep. That's the focus of the prayer in verse 21. Based on all that's been accomplished by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, we now know that his sheep are blessed. And that's the way the author prays in verse 21. And, and what does he pray? Well, he prays that the God of peace would equip them with everything good that they may do God's will and that God would work in them that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is the resurrection in work clothes. This is what the resurrection should do for you tomorrow. This is how the resurrection should impact your life on July 13th and on November 12th and on December 31st and however many days the Lord gives you in this life. Every one of them should be affected this way. This is theology in, in work boots. Theology puts its street clothes on here in verse 21 and says here how, how, how we now live in light of the resurrection is this. This is everyday living kind of stuff here. And I would argue, I, I think, I hope you see this, it's hugely encouraging to us. This resurrected shepherd is not a shepherd we come and rejoice in in the moment and sing our songs at the top of our lungs and play our horns as loud as we can. And I hope in heaven I get to pray, play a trumpet, by the way. I want to just blow that thing as loud as I can and praise to God and make it sound good. Wouldn't that be awesome? Maybe we can play every instrument available, ones we haven't even seen yet in praise to the king. But I digress. We could do all that today and go our way and have missed the whole point. God brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep so that his sheep will be blessed to his glory. It's a blessing available for all of Christ's sheep. It's a, a blessing that can be secured through prayerful dependence like what we see in the author here in Hebrews 13. So, friend, if you are a sheep of this great shepherd, then you can have the blessings of verse 21. The God of peace delights to answer this prayer. Why else would God put it in the scriptures? You know when God inscripturates a, a prayer, he wants you to pray that way. And so how does he want you to pray? Well, he wants you to, to ask for this kind of blessing. We're just going to walk our, our way through verse 21 phrase by phrase and point out what he's asking for. The main part of the prayer is that these saints would be blessed by his equipping, that they would be equipped. It's a powerful prayer coming after chapters 11, 12, and 13, duh, but for a reason. He says it here on purpose. Think with me. You, you know the, the, the uh, writing of Hebrews. You, you know what the author's argument is. So think of chapter 11. What's going on in chapter 11? Well, the writer calls 
them to follow the example of persevering faith. And he goes down the litany of Old Testament saints, those who have gone before from Abel to Noah to Abraham to Sarah to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses and so many others. He says, follow them. Persevere as they persevered. Take God at his word like they took God at his word. Then in chapter 12, as you turn the page, they are given the ultimate example of faith, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider him, the writer says. Follow him. Endure as he endured. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do what Jesus did. And then he, he turns in verse 3 of chapter 12, and he, he starts exhorting them to love and good deeds. He, he tells them, this is how you should now live in everyday life based on this Jesus you're following. Okay, think big picture again. They're, they're giving the example of persevering faith in 11 and beginning of 12. They're giving the explanation of persevering faith in 12 into 13. But if the writer left them there, they would be hopeless and helpless. You are not able, friend, to, to live out this persevering faith in your own strength, by your own power and according to your own doing. It is not possible. How do I know that? Because the writer prays for them to have the power to do what they can't do. So he says, Lord, equip them to do your will and to walk by faith. This is the energy needed, the power needed to walk by faith and to persevere in faith. You know that struggle, don't you? You know how hard it is to obey, to believe, to persevere. You know how difficult it is to, to maintain the roles and responsibilities that God's given to you. You know the crushing weight, don't you, of those things? I sure do. Us preachers often lament together how God asks us to, to live the sermon before we preach the sermon. That has been my experience this week. I just crushing weight of everything. Like, I can't do this. You can't do this. You, you can't persevere in faith in a resurrected Lord. You know him, you see him, you're given the example of him, you're told how to walk by faith in him, and you still need more. That's how helpless we are. We're sheep. And it is here that the resurrected shepherd thrives in giving us life, spiritual energy mediated through prayerful dependence to help us Take God at his word and walk by faith. It is necessary upon our hearts this morning to ask this God of peace to do this work in us. Where you feel that crushing blow, you need to pray this prayer. Where you feel that utter helplessness and you failed yet again, you need to bow the heart and the knee before your sovereign and ask him for help. Specifically, ask him to equip you. That's the, the mending of the nets that we see in Mark 1 when Jesus comes across his disciples. Before he calls them, they're in the boat mending the nets of their father's business. That's this word. They're equipping their nets. What are they doing? They're fixing and preparing their nets to go do something. 
to get the job done. That's what the writer of Hebrews prays about for all those who are sheep underneath the great shepherd, that they would be equipped by the great shepherd to do the things that the great shepherd wants them to do, to have the equipment, as it were, to accomplish the task. This is the prayer of faith. Mend us and prepare us and equip us to do your will, O God. And notice that he prays that God would give everything good that's needed to do it. Lord, don't just give me the motive to do it. Don't, don't just help me with the, the right desire. Lord, equip me with the, the right unction of the will. Lord, equip me with the, the right decision in the moment to know your will. No, it's like everything. The heart attitude, the heart motive, the the compelling reasons, the, the content of obedience in submission to the word, everything good that is needed to obey the great shepherd of the sheep, he's asking the God of peace to give. This is the blessing that comes by his equipping, and this blessing also comes to us for his will. By his equipping and for his will, the equipping is not so we can live to ourselves and go our merry and sinful way, is it? It's not so we can have an easier life and enjoy ourselves a bit before we exit this life. Rather, the equipping is so we can do what God wants us to do. Walking by faith and persevering in our following of Jesus is not some, some nebulous concept out there where we find kind of a, a way that we chart our own path. Kind of bounce between different opinions, ours and others, and kind of figure life out as we go and call it the will of God. That's not what he's talking about here. How do I know that? Because he spent the last three and a half chapters talking about the will of God. He told them at the end of chapter 10, you have need of endurance as you face these challenges so that you will do the will of God and receive what is promised to you. What's the will of God there? He says it's to not shrink back or fall away, but persevere in faith. Chapter 11, he explains to us and lays before us the, the perseverance of Old Testament saints who took God at his word. They were given promises of God, the words of God, where he, he went on the record and said, I'm going to do this for you. And then they went out from there, and it didn't look like he was going to do this for them. Abraham and Sarah married decades, no children. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. As many as the sands of the seashore, I'm going I'm to through you make many nations. I'm going to bless the world because of you. He has no children. How is that possible? But he persevered in faith. He continued believing that God would be a God of his word. This is what it looks like in every moment to walk in persevering faith and to walk according to God's will. It is to take God at his word even if everything else contradicts it. Then in 12.1, he says, lay aside every weight of sin and run this race of faith with endurance. That's God's will. Hebrews 12.3-13, learn the discipline of our Heavenly Father is for your good. Be trained by it to be more holy. That's God's will. Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see God. That's God's will for you. Hebrews 12, 15 and 17, abstain from fleshly and unholy living. 
so that you do not fail to obtain the grace of God. That's God's will for you. 1225, he tells us not to refuse the one who is speaking to us a better word than any other, namely Jesus Christ. That's God's will for you. 1228, he calls us to be grateful for a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And in our gratefulness, offer up acceptable worship with thanksgiving to God. 13.1, let brotherly love continue. 13.2, show hospitality. 13.3, remember those who are in prison. 13.4, honor the marriage bed and keep it holy by purity. 13.5 and 6, be content with what you have and resist the love of money. 13.7 and 8, remember those who have gone before you, those who have led you in the past and imitate their faith as they followed Christ who is the same yesterday in their day, today in your day, and forever in any coming day. Follow them. 13, 9 through 14, do not be led away from Christ, but go with him outside the camp and bear his shame and bear his reproach with him. 13, 15, offer up sacrifices to God, sacrifices of praise. 13, 16, do good and share what you have. 13, 17, obey our leaders and submit to them. 13, 18 and 19, pray for us. This is God's will for you. Now he turns in 1321 and he says, great shepherd of the sheep, God of peace, you must help them do that. You must equip them to make that happen. God's will is not obtuse. It's not unknown. It's not nebulous, uncertain, or uncommon. It's not individualized or personalized. It's general enough that it applies to all believers of all times in all places. But it's also specific enough that it directs every aspect of life to be lived by faith in Christ. Beloved, God intends for us to do his will. To obey him and to grow in the holiness we see in Christ. He so much intends it that he explains it to us. Brother or sister, does that, does that matter to you? Does that matter to you that, that Christ has been this clear with you of what persevering faith looks like? Do you find yourself pressing into these commands? By faith, receiving them as what is best for your good and for his glory? Do you find yourself crying out to the Lord, I can't do this, Lord? I can't obey you here. I'm struggling with the love of money. I I can't be content in my heart of my own power and strength. I can't do your will here apart from your help. Lord, equip me as the God of peace who brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, even our Lord Jesus Christ. If indeed he has been raised from the dead, then we have all that we need for life and godliness including obedience to his will. This blessedness of walking in his will is also by his power. The next phrase says, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. You can't know this blessed life unless you walk by faith in our resurrected shepherd, knowing that it is from him and it is by him. Not only does he tell us what to do, but he makes us able to do it. That's an astounding, I mean, that's a good shepherd, don't you think? An average shepherd just tells the sheep where to go. 
and get it done. But a great shepherd tells us what to do and then makes us able to do it. This is how Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5 where he says that our confidence is never in ourselves but always our adequacy comes from God. This is how he also talks in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 where he tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. That's live in accordance to God's will. Then he roots that command in God's work and God's power when he says, for it is God working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the heart of the the life of faith. It's a, a clinging to Christ in prayerful dependence for spiritual strength and energy to do the things necessary so that you might be pleasing to God. And the confidence, the only confidence that secures that faith is that Jesus was resurrected from the grave. If that is not true, you have no hope to obey God. But because that is true, you have all the hope you need, all the power available, all the mercy to flow to you by the God of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord to make you that which is pleasing to him. This is also then for his pleasure. It's by his power and for his pleasure. It pleases our heavenly father when we walk by faith in his son. This ought to put a smile on your heart. Brother, sister, God is pleased with you when you obey and walk by faith and do his will. We're not talking about justification here. That is settled only by Christ. The pleasure of your righteous standing before God cannot be won by your good works. It can only be won by the good work of Jesus through his death on the cross for you. But once that is settled by grace through faith in him, you now being born again, having new life in you, being redeemed from your sin by the blood of his cross. You now can do his will and he's pleased with you. I happen to be a dad, so I know how quickly I come across as unpleased with my children. How easy it is for me with a look or a little word to sour every part of their existence because dad is not pleased with them. I also know the power of that encouraging moment when you can say to your kids, I am so thankful to God for you. You bring me such joy. Thanks for being my kid. And you know being a kid the joy that brings to your heart when your parent recognizes you as being pleasing to them. Beloved, this is the resurrected Christ's work in you to make you a delight to his Father, to make you a joy in the presence of God, that you do his will and he is pleased with you. This is also then through his provision. This is the the blessed obedience through Jesus Christ, the writer says. The only way for this prayer to be answered, as we've said, is is through Jesus Christ. And so you don't miss it. He says it again at the end of the verse. The substitutionary death of 
Christ, this powerful resurrection of Christ, have provided for us all that we need to live this life of faith in God. And I, I gotta have to tell you, it's not one way among many. It is the only way. There is no other way to, to be empowered by God, equipped by God to do his will and to be pleasing to him. It is only through Jesus Christ. He has worked that work for you through his son. And this ultimately then is for his glory. This is the explosion of praise at the end of the prayer. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This could be speaking of glory to Christ. He's the closest antecedent. Or it could be speaking of glory back to the God of peace who's the main subject of the prayer. Either way, it doesn't much matter, does it? Glory to Christ or glory to the Father. It's glory to the triune God. They magnified together in this glorious work to equip their people to do their will through the power of the resurrection of the great shepherd. Beloved, there's no better life than the one of blessing prayed for in these two verses. There's no greater dependence which we can express upon our God than what we see here expressed. There's no greater confidence we can have than the confidence rooted in our resurrected shepherd who delights to bless his sheep as they seek to walk by faith and do his will for his pleasure and ultimately to the praise of his glorious grace. Take this theology and put it into working boots this week. Because your shepherd is resurrected, may you be blessed sheep. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege to consider Christ. You've called us to do that. You've commanded us to do that. We trust that by obeying you, you will meet our spiritual need, which is to have more of Christ, to receive more of his grace, to be more conformed to his image. So we pray that you would accomplish that in your church today. We pray especially for those among us who don't yet know peace with you through this great shepherd. We ask that by your kindness you would rescue them from their sin today. That they would look upon Christ and believe and have eternal life. That they would be set free from sin to live this life of obedience to your will. Then Lord, I pray for the saints among us who struggle the most today with obeying you with walking by faith. I pray that today would be a day of great liberty where they would confess that sin to you. They would know the freedom of forgiveness through the shed blood of Christ. That they would know the equipping work of your spirit that they might live in a way which then is pleasing to you and good for them and honoring to you. Lord, may all of this, as you answer it according to your will, be to your praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we end with a parting song of praise to our risen Savior. Alleluia, alleluia.
Beloved, I am so glad that is true. I trust that you are as well. It's been a good day to gather and worship and give praise to our Lord. I hope your heart is encouraged, your faith is inflamed, your love is made new and stronger than it's ever been for our Lord Jesus. If you're visiting with us today, it's a special joy to have you. I trust to get the opportunity to meet you. As soon as I pronounce the, the blessing, the benediction, which we trust the Lord will answer, I'm going to make a beeline down the aisle, not to be rude, but try to get to the door and see as many of, of you as I can. One of the greatest joys of, of Resurrection Sunday is being together with God's people. So it'll be a joy to, to see you at the door and to greet you and thank you for being here among us this morning. As you go your way, may this be true of you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be with you all. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.